Welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Michael Neal, and I work at a school in Tennessee called Vanderbilt University. It's basically my job to learn with and from some of the most thoughtful, ambitious, and impactful individuals who have come through Vanderbilt's leadership and learning in organizations doctoral program. Before earning a doctorate, these leaders partner with an organization, conduct a research project in that organization, and offer evidence-based recommendations that make a positive impact. We call this a capstone project. This is a show about how some of the most dynamic capstones were constructed and carried out, and the particular pivot points that made the project, but could have broken it. What we discovered in conversations with group members is that all of our own, all of the group members from the responders had very different ideas of what they thought the business leaders thought about these topics. And that's kind of where we all stopped and thought, that's what we need to know. That's what we need to uncover. We need to know before we go into the, this community and propose ways that uh, we could partner and, and maybe offer some opportunities to businesses and their employees. So they decided that that would be the starting point. Let's start with, you know, finding out what their perceptions are on these topics and then use that to frame our strategy for creating the partnership. Today we hear from Dr. Casey Cover, who partnered with a rural racial justice advocacy organization. Casey's project investigated perceptions of the business community related to race, racism, equity, and inclusion as a way to inform next steps for the organization that she was working with. Of note in this interview is that Casey describes being initially unsure of what to do in terms of analysis and how what she calls cultural models offer direction both as an organizing concept and an analytical method. She also points to the value of an ongoing and iterative lit review as central to the direction of the findings by the end of her project. Let's get to the interview. My name is Casey Cover, and I am an HR professional and uh, data coordinator for a public school district in Pennsylvania. My undergrad is in organizational communication, organizational development, uh, and that led me to, you know, desire to work in human resources, people and culture, which is my current role. And from there, I got my master's in human resource management. My human resources philosophy is that uh, organizations should be investing in their people and mm. and that they will get more out of their workforce by taking care of their people. So that's my HR philosophy. I use the term HR because that's sort of what everyone knows. It, you know, they know what human resources is. Um, mm. But I, I like to talk about the work that I specifically do, not as an HR coordinator, but as a people and culture coordinator. Um, because I think it's it's a different approach and of mm -hmm. what you focus on. You know, when people hear the term HR, they think you know compliance and you know onboarding and you know new hire paperwork and discipline and things like that. Whereas um, I, I think when I talk about it as a people and culture role, I'm talking about a more holistic view of mm -hmm. taking care of people in an organization. All right. Well, give me the kind of the helicopter ride or the uh, elevator pitch in terms of the project that you did. And uh, and then I want to ask questions and dig more into it. 
Sure. So I worked with a local grassroots organization uh, in Pennsylvania, in a rural community in Pennsylvania, whose problem was that they wanted to enter into a particip participatory partnership with the business community in which they, they lived and operated to tackle racism and injustice. Mm. They didn't know how this business community that they were entering into, they didn't know how these individuals perceived these topics. And uh, so so that was the, the problem I was addressing, mm -hmm. uh, was what are the perceptions that these business leaders hold on um, racism, equity, and inclusion? Mm -hmm. And I did a qualitative study using interviews to uncover the cultural models on racism, equity, and inclusion within this rural business community. And then my findings, you know, influenced my recommendations to disrupt the, the cultural models that the business leaders held on these topics. Hmm. And, and so t tell me a little more about the, the problem that your organization was facing. First of all, like, why were they interested you said they wanted to d develop like a participatory relationship with the business community in these ways. What, what was it? Why were they interested in these topics specifically? Yeah. So there was an incident in the community in the late summer of 2020, a specific incident where a group of Black Lives Matter activists were marching from Milwaukee to Washington, D.C., and their march led them through the area. Uh, and this particular incident, the, the group of activists were at a section in their march where they were about to make an uphill stretch and they pulled over alongside the road within the community where the responders live and, and work and operate and a local resident shot at the group of activists. So this incident really was a catalyst for the work that the organization, they're called the responders, I'm not sure if I had said that yet, uh, mm -hmm. the work that the responders were doing uh, within the community. Um, it was the first time that this you know, small rural community um, really had a, a national issue happening mm -hmm. right on their front doorstep. Uh, and this group decided that they didn't want to just, you know, talk about the problems in the community. They wanted to be responders. They wanted to actively do something to improve the community, to improve relationships, to improve justice in the community. And so, the, again, that incident was really the catalyst for the work that they wanted to do. And they felt that this would best be addressed by working with local subcommunities within the area. Uh, for my relationship with the responders and, and partnering with them for this capstone, um, we actually discussed working with a number of communities and sort of narrowed it down to the business community, really just to make my research, a little, my capstone project a little bit more focused. They also are working with the local religious community, education communities. The business community was just one community group that we were focusing on. Uh, really to narrow down my capstone. They, one of the reasons they wanted to partner with the business community is uh, this local community is a tourist attraction. They, they, mm -hmm. they rely heavily on tourism. And so they had this vision, they had this vision to create a partnership with the business community. And w when they started talking to you about, you know, um, what, what you might look at, what kind of investigation that you might do. Um, 
What was it they had in mind in terms of what they wanted to know? What we discovered in conversations with group members is that all of our own, all of the group members from the responders had very different ideas of what they thought the business leaders thought about these topics. Oh, interesting. And was this like in the early conversations you were having with the responders? Yes, in our early conversation. And that's kind of where we all stopped and thought, that's what we need to know. That's what we Hmm. need to uncover. We need to know before we go into this community and propose ways that uh, we could partner and and maybe offer some opportunities Mm -hmm. to businesses and their employees uh, in terms of you know, workshops or, or even just having some conversations because that's that was their idea going into it. We'll just mm-hmm. reach out to the community, offer to do some workshops, some training, and and that will be the end of it. <laughs> but then mm-hmm. when they discovered that we don't even know what they think about these topics. Mm-hmm. And this particular community is um, like 85% uh, Republican. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, a lot of the members of the responders sort of had these assumptions based on media of, of well, this is what they believe. You know, this is mm. how they voted. This is what they believe. This is, uh, you know, uh, so they they were prepared to go into the community without a lot of support and with a lot of misunderstandings. So mm. they decided that that would be the starting point. Let's start with, you know, finding out what their perceptions are on these topics and then use that to frame our strategy for creating the partnership. It took a while. I want to say at least three or four meetings of talking about with us, with a group of us, some representatives from the responders, and then also yep. me observing some of their meetings with all of their members. Gotcha. Take just one step back and describe the responders for us. Did they exist prior to this incident or... And then it sounds like there's like a kind of a core and then a larger group. Can you kind of describe the organization a little bit? Sure. Uh, they they are sort of a spinoff of another grassroots organization that started locally, an upstanders organization uh, that had been around for several years um, and, and covered a variety of topics in the community. But in the summer of 2020, following uh, the murder of George Floyd, they that's when they developed the, the sort of spinoff group of the responders. Um, there's about 20 to 30 individuals. They're all volunteers uh, that either live or have lived at one time, but still have local ties to the community. They meet usually about once every two weeks. And it started out, again, in response to the murder of George Floyd and sort of this, you know, uh, rising national consciousness on issues of racism, equity, and inclusion. Uh, they, They wanted to meet just to discuss these topics. And we're really looking to, you know, maybe have some conversations with some young individuals in the community. In June of 2020, we had a group of young adults put together a, a demonstration in the town square. And, you know, they were really inspired by these young kids that were willing mm-hmm. to go out there and put themselves out there. And, you know, they wanted to talk to them and, and they mm-hmm. just wanted to organize and, you know, start having conversations locally. Uh, and they started doing book reads and, and things such as that. They had a couple of meetings with the young adults who organized the demonstration in town. 
And again, then that's when the incident happened in in the late summer of 2020. I'm curious of like, is this, um, are a lot of these people transplants from other places or these people that just have kind of had uh, some consciousness around critical issues and racial issues and have always lived here? Mostly the latter. Uh, Most of the people are... um, in some way, lifelong residents of the community. Some are transplants. There are a few that, that moved to the area. All right. So you, you end up deciding with these folks that we need to better understand the perceptions of the business community, specifically around these particular uh, issues. And so talk me through how did you decide to investigate this problem, call it a problem or an issue? Yeah. How, how'd you decide to do that? And why why'd you decided to go at it in that way? So my partner organization, they were very uh, adamant up front that they did not want any surveys done. <laughs> they did not want me to do surveys, yes. Uh, why, they, why, why was that? Uh, they just felt that surveys were unreliable. You know, surveys are uh, challenging to create uh, and they were more interested in getting qualitative data. They wanted these to be interviews. Interviews are focus mm-hmm. groups, but they were they were pretty set early on that the the data collection would happen via interviews. I ended up interviewing 22 individuals. Okay, and what kind of counted for you as business community is the phrase you've been using when you think about your sample? What were you going for? What you know? What counted in that? in the sense of the business community? Sure. So, uh, well, first we were, um, uh, I I was targeting leaders from the business community because that's who the responders wanted to go out and and create this partnership with. And and so, you know, had to clarify what do we mean by leaders? Uh, And so that would have been anyone who, you know, owns a business uh, in the community or is in a leadership position in the community. So, um, they could have, you know, just been a manager or, or you know, someone who's well established in the community as a leader. Uh, so to help identify who those people were, um, we started by uh, I started by going to our local business associations. So our Chamber of Commerce and we have an economic development association and uh, interviewed the leaders of, of those organizations And then they kind of, you know, in a snowball sampling sort of way, helped me identify other leaders in the community. The other thing I did was, you know, sort of defining um, or I actually created a sampling framework. So I, I started by identifying, you know, the various industries within the community and uh, sizes of those industries uh, so that I could be sure that I was sort of getting um, representation from various industry and and various organization sizes as well. Mm. Um, And and so I used that when I went to the local business associations uh, to sort of help them help me make the connections I needed to make within the community to, you know, sort of target those individuals that are leaders in the business community. Then it was kind of this struggle of, of coming up with what my conceptual framework would be. Knowing that they wanted interviews and knowing that what we were trying to capture was perceptions. And mm. um, that's when, you know, uh, you helped me uh, as my advisor, helped me uh, discover a couple of different ways I could do that and, and settled upon 
uh, Kim Chi's cultural models as my conceptual framework for uncovering those perceptions. For somebody who's kind of a lay person, what's the idea that G's after with with this cultural models? Sure. So cultural models are sort of these um, like subconscious ideas that we have in our mind about how the world works. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, one I, I like to use that Jim uh, G uses as, as his examples is, is a wedding. So even if you've never been to a wedding in, in your entire life, you already have this idea of what a, what's supposed to happen at a wedding. You know, that it's a bride and a groom and they walk down the aisle and, you know, they're might be a flower girl, bridesmaids and groomsmen. And, and so even if you've never actually attended a wedding yourself, that's the idea that you might have in your mind. And that's influenced by our culture, our social standing, the media that we consume. So somewhere along the way in our lives, we've developed these ideas of what a wedding is supposed to look like. And so mm. that's the cultural, mo- that's what the cultural model uh, idea is. And uh, you're starting to get at that idea of like what might either disrupt the cultural model or if we have access to something that's not the predominant cultural model. So for example, a, a, a wedding of, of a gay couple or perhaps it's a Indian couple and we're not from that culture or something like that. Am I getting it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So uh, that's a perfect example. If you've if you've you've never been to a wedding of a gay couple, you still might draw on that cultural model that you have of, mm-hmm. you know, a, a heterosexual couple. So, t- talk us through the findings. Give us kind of the the gist of the findings. Yeah, my findings were you know the cultural models around racism. Uh, I had uh, sort of two findings on that that they they drew on a lack of diversity cultural model and a politeness protocol cultural model. So the the lack of diversity, what we found that was common across all the interviews were that the business leaders talked about how um, the lack of diversity in the area was both the reason uh, for racism and um, the reason for not wanting to address it. So if there were people who held racist beliefs in the area, well, it was because they just weren't exposed to it. They've never been exposed to it. There's not a lot of diversity. Uh, This community's 98% white. Uh, But it was also their, their reason for why leaders didn't feel a want or need to address it. Uh, or to have conversations about racism because, you know, in their mind, it's not really relevant here. We're, we're 98% white. What would we talk about? So that was a very common, uh, that was common across all the interviews that the lack and this of diversity. Is a, and this is a good example or a good time to kind of stop and, and point to the thing that you were just talking about a minute ago, which is like, yes, I saw that across all my interviews. I saw these kind of two ideas emerge, yes. but it sounds like there was a point at which you said, oh, this is not something that just exists in this little community in this place. Like, this is a larger cultural model. Am I get? Am I getting it right? The yes, way you're. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So uh, this is something that in in research has been uncovered as a way that that white people often avoid talking about racism uh, because they 
because there's a lack of diversity around them. So, so this sort of paired with my lit review, I was able to uncover like this is something that has actually that actually happens other places as well, you know, and mm -hmm. and is a way that people talk uh, or don't talk about race. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other cultural model was the politeness protocol. A and again, this was something that I was seeing across the interviews and I didn't, um, my lit review is what, what gave me that term to go with it. So, uh, you know, the one thing that um, people were saying in the interviews is that they felt uncomfortable talking about race because they were white or because they were um or because they, they didn't have a lot of exposure to it. And there was this fear of saying the wrong thing uh, and that they would rather say nothing at all than say the wrong thing or that they just didn't want to offend anyone. And, so and they, that's, they, the polite, that's, that's the politeness. That's the politeness. There's protocol. an expectation that we just, like, it's better to say nothing than to say yes. anything. Yeah, so this actually, uh, you know, came out in the lit review that, again, this is just a, a something that in research has been uncovered as a way that uh, white people avoid talking about race is this politeness protocol. And, mm -hmm. and so um, I don't know that I would have known how to term that if not for uncovering that in my research, in my literature. Got it. So yeah. it's like these breadcrumbs are coming together for you and you're saying, here's this thing I'm noticing, but it was going back to the lit review is what gave you the ability to, to name these. To name it, yes, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. What was it about this idea of cultural model, or you, you use the word conceptual frame, that, that uh, opened up something? Why wasn't it just like, well, I'm just going to go find out what their perceptions are? And, because and it's that's really it. hard to know what people's perceptions are based on what they're saying. And so mm -hmm. cultural models allows is a way to uncover those perceptions by, by studying, you know, how they talk about a topic um, allows us to uh, uncover what their perceptions are of that, of that topic. It sounds like the lit review in, in some ways was like iterative rather than it being like something you did up front and then and then it was done. Can can you talk a little bit about um, like how the lit review was both, uh, you know, difficult but also productive in the end? There was both a, a benefit and um, a limitation with that. Uh, so my problem was not knowing when I was done with the yeah. lit review, when I had had enough. Yeah. Um, and and so. Uh, it was an iterative process because I finally felt like it was done when I was going through my findings mm -hmm. and could circle them back up to my lit review. Mm -hmm. And that's when it all felt full circle. And I was like, okay, this lit review is, is exactly what it should be. It, it covered what it should. Um, I, because I was afraid early on that I was going to have to go back and, and really fill in some major holes in my lit review. And I did do that a little bit. But once I went through the, the findings, I actually ended up removing some irrelevant mm. stuff from my lit review um, that, that just weren't didn't apply to this particular capstone project. So my second finding was uh, how uh, was asking about the cultural models around equity. And I had uh, two cultural models that were most prevalent there, uh, and that was equal opportunity cultural model and a meritocracy cultural model. Um, and so the, the uh, 
equal opportunity was uh, how business leaders really place this emphasis on equality in terms of outcome. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, judging people based on, you know, uh, how hard they work and, and, you know, what they've accomplished and, you know, uh, this idea that um, they judge everyone based on how hard of a worker they are. They don't, Mm -hmm. they don't, they don't see color. They don't judge Mm -hmm. people based on the color of their skin. You know, Mm -hmm. it's all about what kind of, if if you're a good person, Mm -hmm. you know, they're going to give you an equal opportunity. And, and so then from there, I really started to notice a difference in how they talked about equality versus equity. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and there was really kind of this very evident misunderstanding of the difference they really focused on this idea uh, when talking about equality of fairness, you know, mm-hmm. what's fair, what's fair, but then they, they didn't notice the inequities mm-hmm. and, and the unfairness and the inequities. Mm-hmm. And then the meritocracy cultural model, uh, again, this was something that I was able to pull out of, out of past research. Um, but it was it, it really tied into the equal opportunity one as well. But it was this idea of, you know, I judge people based on their merits and mm-hmm. and not on the color of their skin mm-hmm. um, and and um, how hard they work, their professional credentials. Um, and, and, and that's really where they pulled in this idea of colorblindness. What you would call colorblindness. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. A, a lot of uh, individuals that, you know, talked about um not just that they thought themselves to be colorblind, but they, they were raised to be colorblind. You know, that that was part of, you know, the culture of the community that, you know, not to see color. There was not a sense of awareness that that was problematic in any way. The third finding was uh, the cultural model uh, around inclusion was uh, th- around this idea of an insider, insiders versus outsiders is what I what I call the cultural model. And this meant that like the community really uh, correlated belonging with how well an individual has accepted and taken on the community's norms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, th- they really placed this heavy emphasis uh, on that the only way to feel included and a sense of belonging in the, in the community is to become an insider. Mm-hmm. So to act the way that the community expects you to act, to mm-hmm. take on those cultural norms that are, are held and valued by the community. Um, that's how you became, become an insider and that's how you'll be included. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those, that's how they talked about inclusion within the community. And there were a few individuals that I interviewed that were um, not originally from the area, but even had lived here, you know, over 10 years and still felt like outsiders in the community, you know, still felt like I've been here 10, 15 years. I had one individual say, this is the longest place I've ever lived, but because I'm not from here, I'm not seen as an insider because I I maybe don't Mm. agree with them on this or I've done this differently. Um, and, and it, in some ways it goes back to the, the, the first find the first findings of this politeness protocol and what's expected around, you know, what it means to like behave in certain ways here. Exactly. Exactly. They all saw me as an insider, you know, because mm, I'm someone who, right. who grew up here and, you know, even though I might've, you know, left for a few years, I came back. 
And, right. and that's important to them, you know, that I came back. I know the people who live around here. I, um, you, you know, I know the value that the community plays in everyone's lives. And mm -hmm. so I was seen as, as an insider, which helped me gain access for these interviews. So what do you then recommend um, to them, you know, for what was next? So I had four recommendations. Uh, my first one, identify and establish what they hope to accomplish uh, within this partnership and, and how they'll know if they did it. So to be, you know, to establish specific and measurable goals. Hmm. Um, and, and the reason that uh, that was my first recommendation is that's what many people ask me at the end of the interviews. You know, hmm. what do you hope to do with this information? And I don't know that the respond, I felt that the responders were not on the same page mm -hmm. as an organization, as a group. You know, many of the members were hoping, um, hoping for different things out of these partnerships. Mm -hmm. And so I felt that it was really important based on me being repeatedly asked that question that they have very specific and measurable goals before yeah. entering into this community. Right. So that was my first recommendation. My second recommendation was for them to identify some key stakeholders within the business community uh, with whom to take next steps. And this was because uh, I was able to see how important it was for them uh, to have someone with an insider status, you know, to mm -hmm. establish trust within that community. So by identifying stakeholders within the business community and specifically individuals that, you know, were very receptive to the work that the responders are doing, uh, to go out there and sort of be the champions uh, for this within the community. They would be individuals that were recognized as insiders that are trusted mm -hmm. amongst the wider business community. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so that that would be a, um, one step they should take to gain that insider status. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my third recommendation was to maintain a stance of collective responsibility rather than simply blame. You know, instead of... Um, assigning blame as to who didn't and did or didn't act in the past, mm -hmm. uh, having a, a forward looking approach, mm -hmm. uh, to, to how they'll, um, tackle these issues in the future. And maybe the most important one <laughs> was, uh, I shouldn't rank them, but, um, was to offer learning opportunities designed to disrupt these unconscious theories that the business leaders hold on racism, equity, and inclusion. So mm -hmm. a, a lot of these cultural models, um, you, you know, were ways that we see racism um, exist mm -hmm. in communities. And then the other thing, too, was when I was moving on to my recommendations, they didn't feel scholarly enough. Like, mm. I... I I would, they just didn't like, this is my finding, you know, to mm -hmm. offer learning opportunities to disrupt cultural models. Of course, that's a finding. <laughs> it seemed too easy. Yeah. And that's where, you know, um, having conversations with classmates and, and you, my advisor, really helped me realize that you know, for the responders, that wasn't an easy solution. They mm -hmm. were too much in the thick of it to, mm -hmm. to see that as, as a solution at all. And, yeah. and, um, you know, so, so this idea that I was not finding something, uh, 
or not recommending something that was like good enough. <laughs> Got it. Yes. And I see why I see why that was most important. Where I actually saw more value come out of this was um, the local business organizations have since asked me to come and share my research with mm. their board of directors and leaders within their group. Wow. Uh, wonderful. Yeah. So it's, it's, it, it's created value for the broader community, not just the responders. The responders are, are using these recommendations as well in, in the way that they target these different groups. In fact, they've formed a subcommittee uh, that's really um, designing the different learning opportunities that they're going to offer within the community. And then supporting me in presenting this research to those business associations um, it, so that we can give them tools that they can use, whether it's within their own particular business organization or uh, in creating future partnerships specifically with the responders. Right. Got it. When you were having conversations with the responders after your findings, were there were there some surprises for them? Were, were, there, were there some people that were surprised by what you found or uh, anything about what you found? I think they were not surprised um, necessarily on the findings, but they were very surprised in the willingness these business leaders had to discuss these topics. I'm also curious, just in terms of your positionality as a white woman doing doing research on race, having conversations about race with mostly white people, with a white advisor, what was it like for you to kind of navigate that positionality and be aware of the work that you were doing? Yeah, so, you know, that, that was a, a challenge because many of the individuals that I interviewed voiced some concern too. Um, that this idea of, I can't talk about that because I'm a white man or I'm a white woman. But then we, I guess I'll answer this this way. We have an, uh, an African-American individual in the responders group who shared with me that he was often approached to, by local community churches to come and talk about these topics in the community. And he refused. Um, because he didn't want to be the representative for, you know, all of the diverse populations <laughs> right. in the community. Um, yeah. And that he felt that this is conversations they should be having on their own first. Mm -hmm. It really goes back to this, the conceptual framework you chose, which is you know, this G's idea of cultural models. In the sense that we all, like, we're all drawing on these, right? You don't yes. have to be, right? White people draw, like, draw on cultural models to understand and make sense of what they see yeah. around race and racism. So it's like, just because was, you, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, that was something I had to be a, very aware of or, or that I became aware of as I was going through the analysis is that many of these cultural models that the the, the business leaders held on these topics are cultural models I myself has ha have had to uncover and and understand on my own journey. I I was raised to be colorblind. Mm -hmm. I you know my parents taught me, you know, don't you don't we don't see color. Mm -hmm. Um so I very much understood that that was a cultural model 
I was not surprised that that was a cultural model shared within the community. Right. But that was one that in in past work of mine, I've learned about and and, and uncovered that that was a a, um, a a way for me to kind of excuse mm-hmm. or or you know racist behavior in the community. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it was really just kind of creating, uh, helped me. Um, I had to be always be aware that these were cultural models that I've worked through mm-hmm. um, and, and, and am still working on as I continue this journey of my own. Great. Casey, so nice to have you with us. Thank you for being willing to do this. No problem. Thank you for having me. So what can we take away from Casey's description of this capstone work? One thing that stands out for me is the way that cultural models served as a conceptual tool that allowed Casey to really zoom in on what responders wanted to know. That is, how do business leaders understand racism, equity, and inclusion? As the idea of cultural models offered conceptual clarity and some kind of boundary for the investigation, it also provided an analytical method in terms of discourse analysis. So Casey was able to track commonalities and themes as business leaders discuss these matters and then link those themes back to cultural models previously identified in prior research like politeness protocol and colorblindness. In these ways, cultural models offered conceptual clarity and methodological direction for analysis of the interview data. Thanks for listening. I'm Michael Neal, and this is Pivot Point. A huge thank you to the guests who make this show something worth listening to. Thanks to Peter Shellman for editing, mixing, and tech support. This podcast was made possible in part by a grant from Peabody College Dean's Office, for which I'm certainly grateful. Thanks also to the Capstone Partner Organizations, the hardworking Capstone Advisors, and Program Director Eve Rifkin, all of whom make these projects happen. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to like, review, and share this podcast because that's the way other people are going to find it. All right. I'll see you next time, folks. I'm Michael Neal, and this is Pivot Point.